Okay. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to start a new section today, beginning at verse 19, going through verse 24. Um, but as you probably suspect, we will not finish this today. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to imagine, isn't it? So, let's read that passage. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Pastor Kent Hughes begins his remarks on this portion of Scripture with this illustration. He writes, Mrs. Bertha Adams was 71 years old when she died alone in West Palm Beach, Florida on Easter Sunday, 1976. The coroner's report read, cause of death, malnutrition. After wasting away to 50 pounds, she could no longer stay alive. When the state authorities made their preliminary investigation of her home, they found a veritable pig pen, the biggest mess you can imagine. One seasoned inspector declared he had never seen a dwelling in greater disarray. Bertha had begged food at her neighbor's doors and had gotten what clothes she had from the Salvation Army. From all appearances, she was a penniless recluse, a pitiful and forgotten widow. But such was not the case. Amid the jumble of her filthy, disheveled belongings were found two keys to safe deposit boxes at two different local banks. The discovery was unbelievable. The first box contained over 700 AT&T stock certificates, plus hundreds of other valuable notes, bonds, and solid financial securities, not to mention cash amounting to $200,000. The second box had no certificates, just cash, $600,000 to be exact. Bertha Adams was a millionaire and then some, yet she died of starvation. Her case was even more tragic if she was destitute spiritually. Now that's an extreme ex parable of the lethal dangers of mental illness, uh, but it also teaches us about materialism. Uh, Mrs. Adams' mental condition was probably quite severe, uh, but setting that aside and focusing on the materialism aspect of her case, we see that materialism, the gaining of wealth and possessions, promises us so much, but it cannot give what we need most. Her wealth did not provide what she needed most, a sound mind. Uh, and our materialistic consumer society is constantly telling us that life at its best consists of having more and more possessions and pleasures. In fact, a few years ago, if you re recall, there was a popular bumper sticker which read, 
he who dies with the most toys wins. Uh, as Christians, we know that's patently false and blatantly heretical, but it's clearly explanatory of our world's viewpoint towards materialism. Uh, however, the tug of materialism is so strong that many of us try a balancing act uh, between what the Bible teaches and what Madison Avenue says, uh, between the spiritual riches God offers us in Christ and the worldly treasures which cannot feed our soul. Uh, sadly, many Christians lose that balance and the results are devastating. Uh, the question that rises out of this text is a very simple one. Where's your heart? Uh, and the answer is found in verse 21, isn't it? It's wherever your treasure is. Now, when I ask where's your heart, I'm obviously not talking about anatomy and physiology. Uh, I'm sure you recognize I'm talking about it in terms of the investment of your life, your motives, your attitudes, your thought patterns. Where is the concentration and preoccupation of your life? What do you spend most of your time thinking about and planning for? What is most of your energy directed toward? If you ask that question to most Americans, the answer you would receive would be something along the lines of my house, my car, my bank account, my investments, my retirement plans, or my personal appearance in terms of my clothing, shoes, hair, cosmetics, whatever. All of those are just things, aren't they? We really are a society that's committed to things. Not all societies are like that. There are some societies where they just don't have things. Uh, they're too poor. You go to Central America, to El Salvador, or Honduras, or Guatemala, uh, or Haiti in the Caribbean, and you'll find that the people there are not consumed with things so much as they are with the basic needs just to survive and live. Uh, but we are a society of things. I came across this description of the people in our society in my studies. I thought it was very apropos. Listen to this analysis of our society. I'm, interesting little story. It says, Mr. and Mrs. Thing are a very pleasant and successful couple. At least that's the verdict of most people who tend to measure success with a thingometer. When the thingometer is put to work in the life of Mr. and Mrs. Thing, the result is startling. There he is sitting down on a luxurious and very expensive thing, almost hidden by a large number of other things. Things to sit on, things to sit at, things to cook on, things to cook, eat from, all shining and new, things, things, things. Things to clean with, things to wash with, things to clean, things to wash, and things to amuse, and things to give pleasure, and things to watch, and things to play. Things for the long hot summer and things for the short cold winter. Things for the big thing in which they live and things for the garden and things for the lounge and things for the kitchen and things for the bedroom. Things on four wheels and things on two wheels and things to put on top of the four wheels and things to put behind the four wheels and things to add to the interior of the thing on the four wheels. Things, things, things. And there in the middle are Mr. and Mrs. Thing, smiling and pleased, pink with things, uh, thinking of more things to add to their things, secure in their castle of things. Well, Mr. Thing, I have some bad news for you. 
Oh, you say you can't hear me because of the things that are in the way. Well, I just want you to know that your things can't last. They're going to pass. There's going to be an end to them. Oh, maybe an error in judgment, maybe a temporary loss of concentration, or maybe you'll just pass them off to a secondhand dealer. Or maybe they'll wind up in a mass of mangled metal being towed off to the thing yard. And what about all the things in your house? Well, it's time for bed, so put out the cat, make sure you lock the door, and hope some thing taker doesn't come and take your things. And someday when you die, they put only one thing in the box, you. That's a pretty good analysis of our society, isn't it? Sadly, the leading religious leaders of Jesus' day had the same problem. They were totally consumed with things. Uh, among all the other problems that the Pharisees had, this has to be included also. They were thing-oriented. They were greedy, covetous, manipulative, and they constantly sought after more things. And so as we come to this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus directs some statements about things to the Pharisees who were abusing the issue of possessions. Now remember, the thrust of the whole Sermon on the Mount, which covers Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, is basically to sweep aside the inadequate, insufficient, self-righteous standard of the Pharisees and to reaffirm God's divine standard for life in his kingdom. And so the key to the whole sermon is found in chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, to be in my kingdom, you must live up to God's standard. And he affirms the, that standard in contrast to the Pharisees' standard. For example, in the beginning of chapter 5, he says, to be in my kingdom, you have to have the right view of yourself. The, the Pharisees are proud, egocentric, self-sufficient, but you must be broken in spirit, mourning over sin, meek, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And you have to have the right view of the world. The Pharisees are part of the corruption and darkness that pervades our world, but you must be salt that retards the corruption and light that dispels the darkness. And you must not only have the right view of yourself and the right view of the world, but you must have the right view of the Word of God. Uh, the Pharisees have developed their own system, but you must know that the Word of God is what you must be committed to and not one letter or stroke will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And then you must have the right view of moral issues. The Pharisees are only concerned with the externals. They're only concerned that they don't kill, that they don't commit adultery, or that they don't do something else. But I'm telling you that the moral issues are just are not what you don't do or that you do what you think or don't think. And so you must have the right view of moral issues. And then in chapter 6, he says you have to have the right view of religious issues. <clears throat> the Pharisees fast and pray and give, but it's all hypocritical. You must fast and give and pray, but with a right motive. In other words, the whole sermon is set in contrast to the system of religion of that day, which was dominated by the thinking of the Pharisees and the scribes. 
And Jesus is saying that God's standard exceeds their standard, and it's his standard that is required for being in his kingdom. Now, starting in chapter 6, verses 19 to 24, he says that you must also have the right attitude, the right view towards wealth and luxuries. And then from verses 25 to 34, you have to have the right view of necessities. So he's talking about things here. First, luxuries, and then necessities. And in both cases, the Pharisees had missed it. They had the wrong perspective on wealth, and they had the wrong perspective on necessities. And so in every element of Jesus' message, he sets himself and his word in contrast to the Pharisees. He says, your view of wealth and luxury must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if you want to be a part of my kingdom. They have the wrong perspective. Verse 19, they're doing exactly what they shouldn't do, namely laying up for themselves treasures on earth. They're consumed with greed and covetousness, and that's not the way it should be. So our text then, from verses 19 to 24, deals with how we view our luxuries and wealth. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, I'm not wealthy, think again. We live in a society where all of us are wealthy in comparison to the way the, most of the rest of the world lives. If you don't think you are, then you haven't been outside of your little box to see how most of the people of this world live. The USA <clears throat> has a median annual income per person, not per family, but per person of $19,306 a year, which places it fifth among the world's 195 countries. By way of contrast, the countries that I mentioned earlier are very poor. El Salvador, the annual income per person is $3,095. Guatemala is $2,036. Honduras is $1,959. Haiti, <clears throat> Haiti is $1,162. If you go to Africa, to the countries where SOS ministers and some of our elders have helped train pastors, it's much worse. Nigeria, the annual per person income is $825. Benin is $699. And Togo is $683. So while we're dealing with what to do, with all of our wealth and things in this country, they're dealing with how to survive by just getting the basic necessities of life in those countries. So this text is talking about how we handle our luxuries. That is our possessions beyond eating and drinking a simple meal, sleeping and basic clothing. And if we're part of his kingdom, we have to face what he says here. This is a very convicting and heart-searching passage. Uh, now, please don't think, well, 
He's going to be talking about money. And I don't want him messing around with my approach to that. So why don't we go visit one of the other classes for a couple of weeks? No, I want you to be here because this isn't my message. Uh, this is the Lord's word to us. And God's word always talks about issues which if we obey what he says about them, we will receive his blessings. And how we handle and deal with money is one of those areas. <clears throat> now, as we said, Jesus has been talking about the Pharisees' hypocritical religious practices in this chapter. And it follows that after talking about their hypocrisy, he would talk about their view of wealth and money. Because inevitably, where you have false religion, you have greed. Whenever you encounter a false teacher, if you will go behind the scenes, you will find out that he is greedy and in it for the money. Uh, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.3 that false teachers exploit people with false words because of their greed. In 2 Peter 1.14, he says they have a heart trained in greed. Uh, Paul told, the, told Titus to silence the false teachers on Crete because they were teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. That's why both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, when Paul is giving the qualifications for elders and deacons, he says they must not be fond of sordid gain. Uh, church leaders are not to be men who discharge their ministry for the sake of greedy financial gain because that is an inevitability with false teachers. In fact, the Bible characterizes hypocritical religion usually in two ways. It's greedy of money and it's immoral in its lusts. Uh, those two things characterize the course of false religions and the ministries of false religious leaders. Even in the Old Testament, we find that that was true. Where you had hypocrisy, you also had greed for money and sexual immorality. For example, in 1 Samuel 2, you find that Eli was the high priest and he had two sons named Hophni and Phinehas. And they would also have been priests in the Levitical priestly line. And as the sons of the high priest, they were men of great responsibility before God and the people. But they were phonies. They were absolute hypocrites. They were totally immoral and lustful and lascivious and lewd. And in fact, 1 Samuel 2.12 says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Their greed was exhibited by the fact that they took more than their prescribed share of the sacrificial meat for themselves. Uh, the priests were entitled to certain parts of the meat, but these guys were greedy uh, and took much more than what God allowed. And since it was meat that had been offered to the Lord, we're told in verse 17 that their greed was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. They were treating that which was sacred as if it was secular, and God doesn't like that. You say, but that doesn't say they were greedy for money. No, it doesn't. But if you're taking extra meat for yourself, you don't have to go buy more if you want it. And that saves you money, doesn't it? So they were storing up wealth for themselves that way. 
And although the text doesn't say it, I'm sure they were doing much more than that that revealed their greed. And they were also sexually immoral. Verse 22 tells us that they committed adultery with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Uh, that's like a pastor having an affair with a church secretary or one of the deaconesses. So they were evil, vile men whom God had told Eli would both die on the same day because he was going to cut off Eli's line to the priesthood and raise up a faithful priest. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, both of them were killed when the Philistines defeated the Israelites in battle and they seized the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which the Israelites had taken there, using it like it was some kind of special charm, uh, supposing that its presence uh, would result in God defeating their enemies, but it didn't. And uh, not only did the Philistines take the ark, but they killed both Hophni and Phinehas. And God raised up Samuel to become the high priest. Well, the Pharisees were doing the same things as Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, they were using their religious position to fill their pockets and get rich. And let me tell you, there's nothing more foul smelling in the nostrils of God than that. There are many false teachers, some of whom you know fairly well from seeing them on television, who are doing the exact same thing. Uh, wherever you have religious hypocrisy, you inevitably have the problem of greed. To the Pharisees, to be rich was to be holy. Uh, to be rich was to say, hey, look how much I've got. I'm rich because guess what? God is blessing me. Uh, they were the first prosperity preachers. Uh, that's why when the Lord said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, it was absolutely shocking to them because they thought riches were the stamp of divine approval on your life. God gave you your wealth because you were so righteous. They equated money with the blessing of God. And that was their whole system. And so they greedily gathered money, and the richer they became, the more they pretended to the people that this was a mark of their spirituality. Uh, Anas and Caiaphas, the high priest during the time of Jesus, ran or licensed concessions in the temple that made them extremely wealthy men. They were the guys who controlled the selling of the sacrificial animals and money changers that Jesus chased out of the temple, uh, which is just one reason why they hated him so much. Now, where did they get this concept? Well, they turned the teaching back in Deuteronomy 28 upside down. Let's turn there and look at it. Deuteronomy 28, when the Lord had delivered Israel from Egypt and brought them to the edge of the promised land, the land which flowed with milk and honey, the Lord laid down some wonderful conditions for them to enter the land. And on the basis of those conditions being met, he gave them some wonderful promises. And in Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 and 2, Here's what the Lord said to them as they begin preparing to enter the land. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. 
All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Now, obviously, the basic command regards obedience. God says, if you do what I say, I'll bless you. Now, how will the blessings come? Verse 3. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall the offspring be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your beast, the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Now notice this. All of those blessings were what kind of blessing? Material blessings. Physical, tangible, visible, earthly blessings. God says, if you will obey me, I will bless you visibly, tangibly, materially, physically. Conversely, look down at verse 15. And here you have the opposite. But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe all, to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. In other words, God says material blessing is a sign of your obedience, and material poverty is a sign of your disobedience. Now, those blessings were clearly contingent on obedience to the Lord. Material or other earthly benefits that are accumulated by greed, dishonesty, deceit, or any other immoral way are not to be conceived of as blessings from the Lord. To claim God's approval simply on the basis of one's wealth, health, prestige, or any other thing is to pervert his word and use his name in vain. But the Pharisees began to build their phony system off of things like the idea that the more you've got the, uh, things, of things, uh, like the, uh, that the more it proves that God is blessing you, which is a misinterpretation of the whole point of Deuteronomy 28. And so the acquisition of material wealth became their greatest goal so that they could parade their supposed righteousness and say, look what God's done for me. This just proves how holy I am. And just like the health and wealth prosperity preachers of our day, they misapplied verses such as Proverbs 10.22, which says it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. They twisted the scripture to fit their own corrupt desire for money. Now, the Old Testament warned against this attitude. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, Solomon said, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. In Exodus 20, verse 17, what's the 10th commandment of the 10 commandments? Yeah, you shall not covet. In Proverbs 23, 4, Solomon says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Boy, that really strikes at the heart of the American business culture, doesn't it? And in Proverbs 28, 
20, it says, A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will go not go unpunished. Right there, it clearly says that God's blessings come by means of faithfulness, but chasing after wealth and riches will result in his judgment. But in spite of those warnings, Luke 16, 14 says that the Pharisees were lovers of money. They were covetous. They wanted money. They wanted material wealth and possessions. That's really all they had going for them because they were worldly and fleshly and their religion was false. And so it's against the background of the greed of the Pharisees that Jesus speaks. And what he is saying here is that we must have the proper view of money, wealth, and possessions. Now listen, we're living in America in a time of great inflation, aren't we? Uh, higher than it's been since 1982, 40 years ago. And all kinds of economists keep talking about a possible stock market and economic collapse of massive proportions if Russia invades Ukraine or China invades Taiwan or if they both do it at the same time. Well, I'm not an economist and even less of a politician, uh, but I can tell you that there's one basic reason for inflation, and it's greed. When the producers of products have higher production costs due to someone charging them more for the raw materials and having to pay their employees more wages, higher wages, and their stockholders demanding more return on their investment, they have to charge more for their products, and that drives up inflation. And sometimes the producers raise the price of their products much more than they actually need in order to meet the demands of, for more money from their stockholders. So when you throw together the suppliers wanting more money for the raw materials and the employees wanting more money in their wages and the producers wanting more money for their bottom line and their stockholders demanding more, you end up with inflation. And you can play around with all kinds of things like interest rates and price controls and the like to try to get it under control. But until you deal with the heart of man, you will never be able to deal with the problem of inflation in a free society because greed dominates how freedom functions. As John Stott wisely observed, worldly ambition has a strong fascination for us. The smell of materialism is very hard to break. The smell of materialism is very hard to break. Man is greedy, and you have to turn his heart away from covetousness. And that's what Jesus is doing in this text, turning us away from covetousness. You see, we must handle our possessions and our money and our wealth and our luxury like we do everything else. What's the governing principle for all of it? 1 Corinthians 10.31, right? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, including how you handle your money, do all to the glory of God. But we do so much of it to the indulgence of self, don't we? That's the problem. Now, in teaching us how to deal with our luxuries, Jesus presents three choices. There are two treasuries. I want you to just look at the passages I'm speaking here. Matthew 6, 19 to 24. 
There are two treasuries, there are two visions, and there are two masters that he gives us in this text. In verses 19 to 21, we have to make a choice as to whether we lay up our treasure on earth or in heaven. In verses 22 and 23, we make a choice of whether we're going to see and live in light or whether we're going to see and live in darkness. And in verse 24, we make another choice as to whether our master will be God or our master will be money, because it can't be both. So the Lord really gives us three choices about what we will do if we're going to properly handle our wealth. So let's begin looking at our first choice in verses 19 to 21. It is the choice between an earthly treasury or a heavenly treasury. And we're not going to even finish this first point today. Let's read the text again. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now this introduces to us the whole concept of our money. I, I know you all remember that Paul told Timothy that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang, many griefs. Uh, money itself is not evil. It's the love of it. Uh, you can have none of it and yet still love it like crazy. It's the love of money that corrupts. Think about Achan. Uh, instead of inheriting the promised land, he died with his whole family because he decided to take what God said that they were not to take. His love of money cost him and his family their lives. And then you'll recall the story of Solomon, who kept amassing fortunes and fortunes and fortunes until he was the wealthiest man in all the world. And when it was all said and done, he says in Ecclesiastes 1-2, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It was just empty, useless, meaningless, and void. And then there was Ananias and Sapphira, who decided that they were going to keep some of the money they promised to the Lord, and God struck them dead. And then there was Judas, who sold the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver and then went out and hanged himself, and his body fell down to the rocks below, and his bowels burst open. And then there was Demas, who forsook the Apostle Paul because he loved this present world. And you could go through many other illustrations of people who, because of the love of money, were devastated and destroyed in some degree or another. And so we all need to learn about this because it is self-destructive if we don't learn to handle money in the manner which God intends for us. And it's not only self-destructive, but it's destructive for those around us, such as our immediate family, if we do not handle money in the way that God wants us to. So we have to understand what he's saying here. Let's begin with the first part of verse 19. It says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Well, what does this mean? Well, let me give you 
very briefly a little bit of a Greek lesson here. Uh, specifically, the words there in your text, store up, and the word treasury, treasures. Uh, I will... Which is... And then there is two words, thesorizo and thesoros. Thesoros. I put the accent over the wrong letter, and Frank didn't say wrong. Tell me what you we get our uh, English word thesaurus from this word thesaurus. <laughs> uh, what is a thesaurus? It's a treasury of words. Uh, thus the origin of the word. So if you literally translate what Jesus is saying here, it is do not treasure up treasures for yourself. In other words, don't stockpile up money and things. What Jesus is talking about here is not the necessities of life which we use to live every day, but that which we just stock up, pile up and accumulate. Please understand that it's not that we just it's not that which we use to meet the basic needs of our life, food, food, clothing and shelter. Nor is it that which we use to assist the poor or to give to the Lord's work. It's not the money that we set aside and save for future needs or for making wise investments so that we can be better stewards of God's money uh, in days to come. Nor is he, he, so he isn't talking about our financial resources that are in active use. Those funds for which we have a plan that provides the necessities for ourselves, for others, and the Lord's work. But rather, he's talking about that which is stockpiled and amassed just for our own selves. He's talking about luxury. He's talking about that which is beyond what we can possibly use. It's all those things that you don't use, you just stash somewhere, and you keep saying, oh, they're so valuable. And so you keep them. And the implication is that there's an abundance too numerous to use, and so you just pile it up. So what do we mean here? What's he forbidding? Is he forbidding a bank account, a savings account, a life insurance policy, a wise investment? Does he say that we shouldn't possess anything? Some people have taken it that way. In fact, many years ago, we had a man in our church who came close to saying that. He would say, this means that you shouldn't buy life insurance or have a savings account. Uh, those things just indicate a lack of faith in God. Uh, and some people who think along those lines even go further and say, well, that means that this means that you shouldn't own anything. After all, Jesus told the rich young ruler, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Well, have you ever noticed that he was the only person Jesus ever told that to? 
Only person Jesus ever said that to. He didn't say that to Mary and Martha. And there's plenty of evidence to indicate that their family was wealthy in comparison to the rest of the culture around them. It was a matter of the rich young ruler's hearts and the hearts of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The reason he told the rich young ruler to sell all that he had is because all of his possessions stood between him and God. And until he got rid of them, there could be no connection between him and God. It provided an excellent opportunity to test whether or not that, uh, that man was fully committed to turning over the control of his life to Christ. And his response proved that he was not. The problem was not the wealth itself, but the man's unwillingness to part with it. So the Lord is not looking down on ownership of property and possessions. Otherwise, why would he have told the Jews in Deuteronomy 28.11 that if they obeyed him, he would make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beasts and in the produce of your, the ground in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you? No, the Lord isn't saying that we shouldn't possess anything. Think about this. In Exodus 20.15 in the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall not steal. That statement in and of itself assumes that something can be mine that you can't have. It assumes that we have a right to possessions. And not only do we have a, a right to possessions, but you don't have a right to steal my possessions. You're not even to covet my possessions. So the Lord recognizes the right of the ownership of goods, the right of personal property. We already mentioned Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. They had this piece of property. They said, hey, let's sell this property and we'll give all the money to the Lord. But then after they sold it, they told the apostles that they sold it for all this amount of money uh, that they gave to the Lord. But the reality was they held back some of the money for themselves and the Lord killed them. They just dropped dead right in front of the apostles and the other church members who were there. But before he did, he gave them a message through Peter. Listen to Acts 5, 3 and 4. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? In other words, it was yours. You had power over it. You had control over it. You didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to promise to give all the money to the Lord. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. The point I want to make is that it, it's theirs. But once they'd given it in promise, they needed to follow through. Let me tell you, every so often the Lord will test you on this. Many years ago, it's a long time ago now, the day came when I was first asked to preach at Lakeside for the first time. And I was told that I was going to receive an honorarium for doing such. Uh, now, I thought it was only going to be a small amount of money, like maybe $25, $35. After all, I'd spoken at other places, and that's how much I had received. Now, at that time, I didn't have near as much expendable cash as I have now. 
I had three kids at home, only one income, and our family budget was tight. But I thought the amount I was going to receive would be small because the church's budget was also very tight. I felt bad about receiving this money from the church when I knew the budget was tight. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll just give this back to the church. After all, the church needs the funds more than I do. And I made a commitment to the Lord that that's what I would do. And I, I got the honorarium check, and it was for $100, which was much more than I expected. Uh, taking inflation into account, it would be the equivalent of getting $320, $325 in today's money. Uh, and I have to tell you, Satan immediately began tempting me to keep $50 of the money and give the other $50 to the church. After all, he says, you know, Marcia needs that money to buy groceries or to pay for a prescription or something for one of the kids. And I remember that temptation so very well because it was so strong. But I didn't want to end up like Ananias. So I honored my commitment and I gave the entire $100 back to the church. After that, I never again made that kind of commitment. <laughs> Now, whenever I officiate at any event, whether it's a wedding, a funeral, or church service, I try not to even anticipate receiving anything. I do my best to put it out of my mind and just be surprised and grateful for whatever the Lord provides. Uh, and then, based on our needs at the time, I decide how much I'll give to the Lord's work. Uh, but you see, the Lord sometimes tests us about our promises, and the Lord has given us uh, the right to possess things. All he wants is to be sure that our attitude is right in the manner in which we possess them. Uh, for example, in Deuteronomy 8.18, it says, But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. God is the one who's given us the power to make wealth. God has given us the resources and the abilities. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul asked the Corinthians the question, what do you have that you did not receive? And the implied answer is that it came from God. He's the one who gave it to you. God wants us to know these things and to have those things. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Paul is telling Timothy to tell the wealthy Ephesians not to be conceited about how they gain their riches or to fix their hope on them, but rather to fix their hope on God who noticed this richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Isn't that great? And it comes in a section about money. So God has given it to us to enjoy it. We don't have to live a monastic life. Marcia told me I needed to replace my recliner this last year because it was old and worn. I thought it was still fine. She didn't. I replaced it with a nice lazy boy power recliner that's built for a big tall guy like me. I don't sit or lay in that chair and think, man, am I fleshly for getting this chair? I should have bought a hard straight back wooden chair. 
this is just too much comfort for a Christian to enjoy. <laughs> no. The Lord has supplied us with all things to enjoy, and that includes my nice recliner. God is not withholding from us, and he is a God of great generosity. <clears throat> Think about the great men of, script, of God in Scripture who were extremely wealthy. Job, very wealthy. God let Satan take it all away as a test of Job's righteous fidelity to God. After he passed the test, God gave him back double what he lost so that he became an ex extremely wealthy man. Abraham, very rich, but he's called the friend of God. Zacchaeus, very rich. He was the chief tax collector, so he had gained a whole lot of money by means of greed and corruption. And after encountering Jesus and coming to faith, Jesus announced that salvation had come to his house and declared him to be a son of Abraham. So then what is Jesus saying here? What's he forbidding here? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. What does that mean? He's not talking about what we have. He's talking about the attitude towards what we have. It's right to seek needed things. It's right to provide for my family. It's right to plan for the future. It's right to make wise investments. It's right to help the poor. It's right to have enough to carry on my business. But it's wrong to be greedy. It's wrong to be covetous. And so we come right back to the primary motive again. If I'm going to use this for the glory of God in my life, of those around me and in his kingdom, then I have a right to all of it. But if I am seeking after, after it to stockpile it, to hoard it, to keep it, to amass it, just so I can indulge myself in it, that is sin. And you're right back to dealing with that attitude again. Well, I'm looking at the clock, and I think we have to stop. Are there any comments or questions? Everybody in tune with me on this? Yes, Frank? I find it significant that uh, Jesus doesn't use the word money. He uses the word treasure. Because mm -hmm. I think at the very bottom line, everything that you said, even the examples, has to do with treasure. What is it that you treasure? The rich man, he treasured money, mm -hmm. treasured possession. That was his treasure. He did not treasure Christ. That's why he went away sad. As you look at the other examples you used, though they had a lot of wealth, their treasure was Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so it's a question of the heart. What is it that you treasure? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think. When I see these words and I see that they're used, and, and it literally means treasure, to treasure the treasure, mm -hmm. it's, it's actually, what is it that you treasure? It's not an issue of whether you have too much. It's an issue of do you treasure these things when you treasure Christ? Then it's a sin. Mm -hmm. Great point. Anything else? If you haven't felt like I stepped on any of your toes yet, come back next week. I promise you I will. Okay? All right, let's stop.